This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. My mission is simple, to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Every week, I will read classic literature in the public domain. If you enjoy the podcast, Please remember to follow in your favorite podcast app. Tonight, I will be reading Three Men in a Boat by Jerome K. Jerome. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 1 There were four of us, George and William Samuel Harris and myself and Montmorency. We were sitting in my room, smoking and talking about how bad we were. Bad from a medical point of view, I mean, of course. We were all feeling seedy, 
and we were getting quite nervous about it. Harris said he felt such extraordinary fits of giddiness come over him at times, that he hardly knew what he was doing. And then George said that he had fits of giddiness too, and hardly knew what he was doing. With me, it was my liver that was out of order. I knew it was my liver that was out of order, because I had just been reading a patent liver pill circular in which were detailed the various symptoms by which a man could tell when his liver was out of order. I had them all. It is a most extraordinary thing, but I never read a patent medicine advertisement without being impelled to the conclusion that I am suffering from the particular disease therein dealt with in its most virulent form. The diagnosis seems, in every case, to correspond exactly with all the sensations that I have ever felt. I remember going to the British Museum one day to read up the treatment for some slight ailment of which I had a touch. Hay fever, I fancy it was. I got down the book and read all I came to read, and then, in an unthinking moment, I idly turned the leaves and began to indolently study diseases generally. I forget which was the first distemper I plunged into, some fearful, devastating scourge, I know. And before I had glanced half down the list of premonitory symptoms, it was borne in upon me that I had fairly got it. I sat for a while, frozen with horror, and then, in the listlessness of despair, I again turned over the pages. I came to typhoid fever, read the symptoms, discovered that I had typhoid fever, must have had it for months without knowing it, wondered what else I had got, turned up St. Vitus's dance, found, as I expected, that I had that too, began to get interested in my case and determined to sift it to the bottom, and so started alphabetically, read up ague, and learnt that I was sickening for it, and that the acute stage would commence in about another fortnight. Bright's disease, I was relieved to find, I had only in a modified form, and, so far as that was concerned, I might live for years. Cholera I had with severe complications, and diphtheria I seemed to have been born with. I plodded conscientiously through the 26 letters, and the only malady I could conclude I had not got was housemaid's knee. I felt rather hurt about this. It seemed somehow to be a sort of slight. Why hadn't I got housemaid's knee? Why this invidious reservation? After a while, however, less grasping feelings prevailed. I reflected that I had every other known malady in the pharmacology, and I grew less selfish and determined to do without housemaid's knee. Gout, in its most malignant stage, it would appear, had seized me without my being aware of it, and zymosis I had evidently been suffering with from boyhood. There were no more diseases after zymosis, so I concluded there was nothing else the matter with me. I sat and pondered. I thought what an interesting case I must be from a medical point of view, 
what an acquisition I should be to a class. Students would have no need to walk the hospitals if they had me. I was a hospital in myself. All they need do would be to walk around me, and after that, take their diploma. Then I wondered how long I had to live. I tried to examine myself. I felt my pulse. I could not at first feel any pulse at all. Then, all of a sudden, it seemed to start off. I pulled out my watch and timed it. I made 147 to the minute. I tried to feel my heart. I could not feel my heart. It had stopped beating. I have since been induced to come to the opinion that it must have been there all the time and must have been beating, but I cannot account for it. I patted myself all over my front, from what I call my waist up to my head, and I went a bit round each side and a little way up the back, but I could not feel or hear anything. I tried to look at my tongue. I stuck it out as far as it would ever go. And I shut one eye and tried to examine it with the other. I could only see the tip, and the only thing that I could gain from that was to feel more certain than before that I had scarlet fever. I had walked into that reading room a healthy, happy man. I crawled out a decrepit wreck. I went to my medical man. He is an old chum of mine and feels my pulse and looks at my tongue and talks about the weather all for nothing when I fancy I'm ill. So I thought I would do him a good turn by going to him now. What a doctor wants, I said, is practice. He shall have me. He will get more practice out of me than out of 1,700 of your ordinary commonplace patients with only one or two diseases each. So I went straight up and saw him, and he said, Well, what's the matter with you? I said, I will not take up your time, dear boy, with telling you what is the matter with me. Life is brief, and you might pass away before I had finished. But I will tell you what is not the matter with me. I have not got housemaid's knee. Why I have not got housemaid's knee, I cannot tell you. But the fact remains that I have not got it. Everything else, however, I have got and I told him how I came to discover it all. Then he opened me and looked down me and clutched hold of my wrist, and then he hit me over the chest when I wasn't expecting it, a cowardly thing to do, I call it, and immediately afterwards butted me with the side of his head. After that, he sat down and wrote out a prescription and folded it up and gave it to me, and I put it into my pocket and went out. I did not open it. I took it to the nearest chemist and handed it in. The man read it and then handed it back. He said he didn't keep it. I said, you are a chemist? He said, I am a chemist. If I was a cooperative stores and a family hotel combined, I might be able to oblige you. Being only a chemist hampers me. I read the prescription. It ran one pound beef steak with one pint bitter beer every six hours, one ten-mile walk every morning, one bed at eleven sharp every night, and don't stuff up your head with things you don't understand.
I followed the directions with the happy result, speaking for myself, that my life was preserved and is still going on. In the present instance, going back to the liver pill circular, I had the symptoms beyond all mistake, the chief among them being a general disinclination to work of any kind. What I suffer in that way, no tongue can tell. From my earliest infancy, I have been a martyr to it. As a boy, the disease hardly ever left me for a day. They did not know then that it was my liver. Medical science was in a far less advanced state than now, and they used to put it down to laziness. Why, you skulking little devil you, they would say. Get up and do something for your living, can't you? Not knowing, of course, that I was ill. And they didn't give me pills. They gave me clumps on the side of my head. And strange as it may appear, those clumps on the head often cured me for the time being. I have known one clump on the head have more effect upon my liver and make me feel more anxious to go straight away then and there and do what was wanted to be done without further loss of time than a whole box of pills does now. You know, it often is so those simple old-fashioned remedies are sometimes more efficacious than all the dispensary stuff. We sat there for a half hour describing to each other our maladies. I explained to George and William Harris how I felt when I got up in the morning, and William Harris told us how he felt when he went to bed, and George stood on the hearth rug and gave us a clever and powerful piece of acting, illustrative of how he felt in the night. George fancies he is ill, but there's never anything really the matter with him, you know. At this point, Mrs. Poppets knocked at the door to know if we were ready for dinner. We smiled sadly at one another and said we supposed we had better try to swallow a bit. Harris said a little something in one's stomach often kept the disease in check, and Mrs. Poppets brought the tray in, and we drew up to the table and toyed with a little steak and onions and some rhubarb tart. I must have been very weak at the time, because I know, after the first half hour or so, I seemed to take no interest whatever in my food, an unusual thing for me, and I didn't want any cheese. This duty done, we refilled our glasses, lit our pipes, and resumed the discussion upon our state of health. What it was that was actually the matter with us, we none of us could be sure of, but the unanimous opinion was that it, whatever it was, had been brought on by overwork. What we want is rest, said Harris. Rest and a complete change, said George. The overstrain upon our brains has produced a general depression throughout the system. Change of scenery, an absence of the necessity for thought, will restore the mental equilibrium. George has a cousin, who is usually described in the charge sheet as a medical student, so that he naturally has a somewhat family physicianary way of putting things. I agreed with George and suggested that we should seek out some retired and old world spot, far from the madding crowd, and dream away a sunny week among its drowsy lanes, some half-forgotten nook hidden away by the fairies, out of reach of the noisy world, some quaint perched eyrie on the cliffs of time, from whence the surging waves of the 19th century could sound far off and faint. Harris said he thought it would be humpy. He said, 
He knew the sort of place I meant, where everybody went to bed at eight o'clock, and you couldn't get a referee for love or money, and had to walk ten miles to get your backy. No, said Harris. If you want rest and change, you can't beat a sea trip. I objected to the sea trip strongly. A sea trip does you good when you're going to have a couple of months of it, but for a week, it is wicked. You start on Monday with the idea planted in your bosom that you're going to enjoy yourself. You wave an airy adieu to the boys on the shore, light your biggest pipe, and swagger about the deck as if you were Captain Cook, Sir Francis Drake, and Christopher Columbus all rolled into one. On Tuesday, you wish you hadn't come. On Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, you wish you were dead. On Saturday, you are able to swallow a little beef tea and sit up on deck and answer with a wan, sweet smile when kind-hearted people ask you how you feel now. On Sunday, you begin to walk about again and take solid food. And on Monday morning, as, with your bag and umbrella in your hand, you stand by the gunwale, waiting to step ashore, you begin to thoroughly like it. I remember my brother-in-law going for a short sea trip once for the benefit of his health. He took a return berth from London to Liverpool, and when he got to Liverpool, the only thing he was anxious about was to sell that return ticket. It was offered round the town at a tremendous reduction, so I am told, and was eventually sold for 18 pence to a bilious-looking youth who had just been advised by his medical men to go to the seaside and take exercise. Seaside, said my brother-in-law, pressing the ticket affectionately into his hand. Why, you'll have enough to last you a lifetime. And as for exercise, why, you'll get more exercise sitting down on that ship than you would turning somersaults on dry land. He himself, my brother-in-law, came back by train. He said that the Northwestern Railway was healthy enough for him. Another fellow I knew went for a week's voyage round the coast, and before they started, the steward came to him to ask whether he would pay for each meal as he had it, or arrange beforehand for the whole series. The steward recommended the latter course, as it would come so much cheaper. He said they would do him for the whole week at two pounds five. He said for breakfast there would be fish, followed by a grill. Lunch was at one and consisted of four courses. Dinner at six, soup, fish, entree, joint, poultry, salad, sweets, cheese and dessert, and a light meat supper at ten. My friend thought he would close on the £2.5 job. He's a hearty eater, and did so. Lunch came just as they were off Sheerness. He didn't feel so hungry as he thought he should, and so contented himself with a bit of boiled beef and some strawberries and cream. He pondered a good deal during the afternoon, and at one time it seemed to him that he had been eating nothing but boiled beef for weeks, and at other times it seemed that he must have been living on strawberries and cream for years. Neither the beef nor the strawberries and cream seemed happy either, seemed discontented-like. At six, they came and told him dinner was ready. The announcement aroused no enthusiasm within him, but he felt there was some of that £2.5 to be worked off, and he held on to ropes and things and went down. A pleasant odour of onions and hot ham, mingled with fried fish and greens, greeted him at the bottom of the ladder. And then 
the steward came up with an oily smile and said, What can I get you, sir? Get me out of this, was the feeble reply. And they ran him up quick and propped him up over to leeward and left him. For the next four days, he lived a simple and blameless life on thin captain's biscuits. I mean that the biscuits were thin, not the captain, and soda water. But towards Saturday, he got uppish and went in for weak tea and dry toast. And on Monday, he was gorging himself on chicken broth. He left the ship on Tuesday, and as it steamed away from the landing stage, he gazed after it regretfully. There she goes, he said. There she goes with two pounds worth of food on board that belongs to me and that I haven't had. He said that if they had given him another day, he thought he could have put it straight. So I set my face against the sea trip. Not, as I explained, upon my own account. I was never strange. But I was afraid for George. George said he should be all right and would rather like it. But he would advise Harris and me not to think of it, as he felt sure we should both be ill. Harris said that, to himself, it was always a mystery how people managed to get sick at sea. Said he thought people must do it on purpose, from affectation. Said he had often wished to be, but had never been able. Then he told us anecdotes of how he had gone across the channel when it was so rough that the passengers had to be tied into their berths, and he and the captain were the only two living souls on board who were not ill. Sometimes it was he and the second mate who were not ill, but it was generally he and one other man. If not he and another man, then it was he by himself. It is a curious fact, but nobody ever is seasick on land. At sea, you come across plenty of people very bad indeed, whole boatloads of them, but I never met a man yet on land who had ever known at all what it is to be seasick. Where the thousands upon thousands of bad sailors that swarm in every ship hide themselves when they're on land is a mystery. If most men were like a fellow I saw on the Yarmouth boat one day, I could account for the seeming enigma easily enough. It was just off Southend Pier, I recollect, and he was leaning out through one of the portals in a very dangerous position. I went up to him to try and save him. Hi, come further in, I said, shaking him by the shoulder. You'll be overboard. Oh my, I wish I was, was the only answer I could get, and there I had to leave him. Three weeks afterwards, I met him in the coffee room of a bath hotel, talking about his voyages and explaining with enthusiasm how he loved the sea. Good sailor, he replied in answer to a mild young man's envious query. Well, I did feel a little strange once, I confess. It was off Cape Horn. The vessel was wrecked the next morning. I said, weren't you a little shaky by Southend Pier one day? and wanted to be thrown overboard? Southend Pier, he replied, with a puzzled expression. Yes, going down to Yarmouth, last Friday three weeks. Oh, ah yes, he answered, brightening up. I remember now. I did have a headache that afternoon. It was the pickles, you know. They were the most disgraceful pickles I ever tasted in a respectable boat. Did you have any? For myself, I have discovered an Excellent preventive against seasickness in balancing myself. You stand in the center of the deck, and, as the ship heaves and pitches, you move your body about, so as to keep it always straight. When the front of the ship rises, you lean forward, 
till the deck almost touches your nose, and when its back end gets up, you lean backwards. This is all very well for an hour or two, but you can't balance yourself for a week. George said, Let's go up the river. He said, We should have fresh air, exercise, and quiet. The constant change of scene would occupy our minds, including what there was of Harris's, and the hard work would give us a good appetite and make us sleep well. Harris said he didn't think George ought to do anything that would have a tendency to make him sleepier than he always was, as it might be dangerous. He said he didn't very well understand how George was going to sleep any more than he did now, seeing that there were only 24 hours in each day, summer and winter alike, but thought that if he did sleep any more, he might just as well be dead and so save his board and lodging. Harris said, however, that the river would suit him to a tea. I don't know what a tea is, except a sixpenny one, which includes bread and butter and cake ad-lib, and is cheap at the price if you haven't had any dinner. It seems to suit everybody, however, which is greatly to its credit. It suited me to a tea, too, and Harris and I both said it was a good idea of George's, and we said it in a tone that seemed to somehow imply that we were surprised that George should have come out so sensible. The only one who was not struck with the suggestion was Montmorency. He never did care for the river, did Montmorency. It's all very well for you fellows, he says. You like it, but I don't. There's nothing for me to do. Scenery is not in my line, and I don't smoke. If I see a rat, you won't stop. And if I go to sleep, you get fooling about with a boat and slot me overboard. If you ask me, I call the whole thing bally foolishness. We were three to one, however, and the motion was carried. Chapter Two We pulled out the maps and discussed plans. We arranged to start on the following Saturday from Kingston. Harris and I would go down in the morning and take the boat up to Chertsey, and George, who would not be able to get away from the city till afternoon, George goes to sleep at a bank from ten to four each day, except Saturdays when they wake him up and put him outside at two, would meet us there. Should we camp out or sleep at inns? George and I were for camping out. We said it would be so wild and free, so patriarchal-like. Slowly the golden memory of the dead sun fades from the hearts of the cold, sad clouds. Silent, like sorrowing children, the birds have ceased their song, and only the moorhen's plaintive cry and the harsh croak of the corn cake stirs the odd hush around the couch of waters where the dying day breathes out her last. From the dim woods on either bank, night's ghostly army, the grey shadows, creep out with noiseless tread to chase away the lingering rearguard of the light and pass with noiseless unseen feet above the waving river grass and through the sighing rushes, and night, upon her sombre throne, folds her black wings above the darkening world, and from her phantom palace, lit by the pale stars, reigns in silence. Then we run our little boat into some quiet nook, and the tent is pitched, and the frugal supper cooked and eaten. Then the big pipes are filled and lighted, and the pleasant chat goes round in musical undertone, while, in the pauses of our talk, the river, playing round the boat, 
prattles strange old tales and secrets, sings low the old child's song that it has sung so many thousands years. Will sing so many thousand years to come before its voice grows harsh and old. A song that we, who have learnt to love its changing face, who have so often nestled on its yielding bosom, think somehow we understand, though we could not tell you in mere words the story that we listen to. And we sit there by its margin, while the boon, who loves it too, stoops down to kiss it with a sister's kiss, and throws her silver arms around it clingingly, and we watch it as it flows, ever singing, ever whispering, out to meet its king, the sea, till our voices die away in silence, and the pipes go out, till we, commonplace, everyday young men enough, feel strangely full of thoughts, half sad, half sweet, and do not care or want to speak, till we laugh, and rising, knock the ashes from our burnt-out pipes, and say, good night, and, lulled by the lapping water and the rustling trees, we fall asleep beneath the great still stars, and dream that the world is young again, young and sweet, as she used to be, ere the centuries of fret and care had furrowed her fair face, ere her children's sins and follies had made old her loving heart, sweet as she was in those bygone days, when a new-made mother, she nursed us, her children, upon her own deep breast, ere the wiles of painted civilization had lured us away from her fond arms, and the poisoned snares of artificiality had made us ashamed of the simple life we led with her, and the simple stately home where mankind was born so many thousands years ago. Harris said, How about when it rained? You can never rouse Harris. There's no poetry about Harris, no wild yearning for the unattainable. Harris never weeps, he knows not why. If Harris's eyes fill with tears, you can bet it is because Harris has been chopping raw onions or has put too much Worcester over his chop. If you were to stand at night by the seashore with Harris and say, Hark, do you not hear? Is it but the mermaid singing deep below the waving waters, or sad spirits chanting dirges for corpses held by seaweed? Harris would take you by the arm and say, I know what it is, old man. You've got a chill. Now you come along with me. I know a place around the corner here where you can get a drop of the finest Scotch whiskey you ever tasted. Put you right in less than no time. Harris always does know a place around the corner where you can get something brilliant in the drinking line. I believe that if you met Harris up in paradise, supposing such a thing likely, he would immediately greet you with, So glad you've come, old fellow. I found a nice place around the corner here where you can get some really first-class nectar. In the present instance, however, as regarded the camping out, his practical view of the matter came as a very timely hint. Camping out in raining weather is not pleasant. It is evening. You are wet through and there is a good two inches of water in the boat, and all the things are damp. You find a place on the banks that is not quite so puddly as other places you have seen, and you land and lug out the tent, and two of you proceed to fix it. It is soaked and heavy and flops about, and tumbles down on you, and clings round your head and makes you mad. The rain is pouring steadily down all the time. It is difficult enough to fix a tent in dry weather in wet 
the task becomes Herculean. Instead of helping you, it seems to you that the other man is simply playing the fool. Just as you get your side beautifully fixed, he gives it a hoist from his end and spoils it all. Here, what are you up to? you call out. What are you up to? he retorts. Lego, can't you? Don't pull it. You've got it all wrong, you shout. No, I haven't, he yells back. Let go your side. I tell you you've got it all wrong, you roar, wishing that you could get at him, and you give your ropes a lug that pulls all his pegs out. Ah, the bally idiot, you hear him mutter to himself, and then comes a savage haul, and away goes your side. You lay down the mallet and start to go round and tell him what you think about the whole business, and at the same time, he starts round in the same direction to come and explain his views to you. And you follow each other round and round, swearing at one another, until the tent tumbles down in a heap and leaves you looking at each other across its ruins when you both indignantly exclaim in the same breath, There, what did I tell you? Meanwhile, the third man who has been bailing out the boat and who has spilled the water down his sleeve and has been cursing away to himself steadily for the last ten minutes wants to know what the thundering blazes you're playing at and why the Blarm tent isn't up yet. At last, somehow or other, it does get up and you land the things. It is hopeless attempting to make a wood fire, so you light the methylated spirit stove and crowd round that. Rainwater is the chief article of diet at supper. The bread is two-thirds rainwater, the beefsteak pie is exceedingly rich in it, and the jam and the butter and the salt and the coffee have all combined with it to make soup. After supper, you find your tobacco is damp and you cannot smoke. Luckily, you have a bottle of the stuff that chairs and inebriates, if taken in proper quantity, and this restores you to sufficient interest in life to induce you to go to bed. There you dream that an elephant has suddenly sat down on your chest and that the volcano has exploded and thrown you down to the bottom of the sea, the elephant still sleeping peacefully on your bosom. You wake up and grasp the idea that something terrible really has happened. Your first impression is that the end of the world has come, and then you think that this cannot be, and that it is thieves and murderers, or else fire, and this opinion you express in the usual method. No help comes, however, and all you know is that thousands of people are kicking you, and you are being smothered. Somebody else seems in trouble too. You can hear his faint cries coming from underneath your bed. Determining, at all events, to sell your life dearly, you struggle frantically, hitting out right and left with arms and legs, and yelling lustily the while. And at last, something gives way, and you find your head in the fresh air. Two feet off, you dimly observe a half-dressed ruffian waiting to kill you, and you are preparing for a life-and-death struggle with him, when it begins to dawn upon you that it's Jim. Oh, it's you, isn't it? he says, recognising you at the same moment. Yes, you answer, rubbing your eyes. What's happened? Bali Temp's blown down, I think, he says. Where's Bill? Then you both raise up your voices and shout for Bill, and the ground beneath you heaves and rocks and the muffled voice that you heard before replies from out the ruin. Get off my head, can't you? And Bill struggles out, a muddy, trampled wreck, 
and in an unnecessarily aggressive mood, he being under the evident belief that the whole thing has been done on purpose. In the morning, you were all three speechless, owing to having caught severe colds in the night. You also feel very quarrelsome and swear at each other in hoarse whispers during the whole of breakfast time. We therefore decided that we would sleep out on fine nights and hotel it and in it and pub it like respectable folks when it was wet or when we felt inclined for a change. Montmorency hailed this compromise with much approval. He does not revel in romantic solitude. Give him something noisy, and if a trifle low, so much the jollier. To look at Montmorency, you would imagine that he was an angel sent upon the earth, for some reason withheld from mankind, in the shape of a small fox terrier. There is a sort of, oh, what a wicked world this is, and how I wish I could go do something to make it better and nobler expression about Montmorency that has been known to bring the tears into the eyes of pious old ladies and gentlemen. When first he came to live at my expense, I never thought I should be able to get him to stop long. I used to sit down and look at him as he sat on the rug and looked up at me and think, oh, that dog will never live. He'll be snatched up to the bright skies in a chariot. That is what will happen to him. When I had paid for about a dozen chickens that he had killed and had dragged him, growling and kicking by the scruff of his neck, out of a hundred and fourteen street fights and had had a dead cat brought round from my inspection by an irate female who called me a murderer and had been summoned by the man next door but one for having a ferocious dog at large that had kept him pinned up in his own tool shed afraid to venture his nose outside the door for over two hours on a cold night, and had learned that the gardener, unknown to myself, had won thirty shillings by backing him to kill rats against time. Then I began to think that maybe they'd let him remain on earth for a bit longer, after all. To hang about a stable and collect a gang of the most disreputable dogs to be found in the town, and lead them out to march round the slums to fight other disreputable dogs, is Montmorency's idea of life, and so, as I before observed, he gave to the suggestion of inns and pubs and hotels his most emphatic approbation. Having thus settled the sleeping arrangements to the satisfaction of all four of us, the only thing left to discuss was what we should take with us, and this we had begun to argue when Harris said he'd had enough oratory for one night and proposed that we should go out and have a smile, saying, that he had found a place, round by the square, where you could really get a drop of Irish worth drinking. George said he felt thirsty. I never knew George when he didn't. And, as I had a presentiment that a little whiskey, warm, with a slice of lemon, would do my complaint good, the debate was, by common assent, adjourned to the following night, and the assembly put on its hats and went out. <laughs>